Well, again, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> and you already know that today, in the heat, but that's because we're brave, we are starting a brand new series in the book of James. We did teach it a bit last year, but we ran out of time, and I didn't think we did it justice. So we're going to slow right down and take in this amazing book. If you go to www.simplygod.net and you click on Sundays, you will go down and an outline of the whole talk is there for you. So you'll be able to follow. In fact, I think I even put a, I think I put a quote there for you, but it, it's all there. But you'll also be able to see the points on the PowerPoint. I'm going to read this passage. We're just going to look at the first eight verses. I'll pray and we'll jump right in. So, listen to what the Holy Spirit says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose they will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Uh, you probably know about ADHD. I think you know what ADHD is. Uh, if you don't, it's called uh, something. What is it called? Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. That's what ADHD stands for. Um, I am diagnosed with it. My wife knew it all along, but at last, you know. But be that as it may. So one of the best descriptions I've ever, because I don't speak uh, medicalese, just give it to me simply. One of the best simple descriptions I've heard is it's like the four horses of the apocalypse. So what it is, is you, got, you know in the old days they had a stagecoach. And you have four horses pulling the stagecoach, right? ADHD is like having four horses pulling the stagecoach, but they're each tied to one corner of the stagecoach. So they're all four pulling in different directions. And your brain is being pulled, and everything demands your attention. Everything that's going on around you demands your immediate attention. It's hard to say what's more important than something else. And so you take medication. And what medication does is it gives you a split second, because they're all still there and they're all still pulling at your brain, but you get to say, no, 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 no. I'm going to do that one first. I'm going to focus on that. 
then I will get to that. In other words, you can order your thoughts. They're not all shouting at once, they are, but you get a chance to order them and you can choose which one to go with, uh, etc. Now the reason I start like that, sin is like having ADHD in your heart. That's what sin is. Your heart is the center of your loves. So your brain is the center of your thoughts. But your heart is the center of your loves. The things that you value, your affections. Uh, I don't mean by affections uh, visible. I'm talking about the things you are affected by, the things you like, your delights, your values, your loves. Now, in a healthy heart, your loves are all ordered. They're ordered. God created us with a heart to love him. Please don't think love God, number one, tick. Love wifey, number two, tick. Love the dog, number three, tick. Love the children, number four, tick. Oh, that sounds already, but never mind. You get the point. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not right. What God did was designed you to love him only. Your whole heart is full of love for him. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Yes, but what about my dog and my wife? And my... Ah, yes. The way you love God is to love your wife and your dog and your children. They are not in a hierarchy. They are the outflow of a heart that loves God only. You can love the ocean. You can love flowers. But you love them for God's sake. Because you love him. And that's all ordered. Along comes sin. And when sin enters your heart, it gets disordered. And you have ADHD of the heart. And you are now pulled in different directions. And your loves are going all over the place. You love this, but you, oh, but I love that. But I love you, God. Yes, but I also love, and you are, well, you know what the psychologists say? You are then fragmented. You have a fragmented self. Look at verse 6 to 8. This is what you become like. You're like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You're a victim. You're driven and tossed. Because your loves are pulling you in different directions. That man is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And you might be here this morning, and you might be thinking to yourself, but what's the problem with that? Do you know that I like wind, and I like the ocean, and if I'm honest, I love being driven by waves. Actually, I want to be the guy in number six. That sounds way more fun than Christianity. Why do I need an ordered heart? Ah, because loving anything more than God will hurt you in the end. It will. Sometimes it's obvious. Show me somebody who loves food more than anything in the world. What, what do you get? Well, it's obvious, right? Or show me someone who loves alcohol 
more than anything in the world. You know what you get. Right, so sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's not obvious. If you love yourself more than God, more than other people, you will be a liar because you have to keep making yourself look good. Or you might turn out violent. Why are you violent? Because someone went against God, who is me, by the way, and I'm very angry about blah, blah, blah. Or you might turn out to be devastated. You loved this person more than God and they cheated on you and you never recover. Because you loved them more than anything. Blah, blah, blah. It will hurt you in the end. When you love something more than God, you look to that thing to give you what only God can give you. And when you do that, you crush that thing because it can't give you what you were looking for and you end up hurt. The book of James addresses that. The book of James is all about having an undivided heart. The book of James is like Ritalin for the heart. I don't know if that's right. All the doctors are going, dude, don't go there. Okay, sorry. But my point is, the book of James reorders our hearts. The book of James. You know, when we first taught this last year a little bit, I called it simple Christianity. And the reason I called it simple Christianity is because simple is actually a philosophical concept. It means, simple means, not comprising parts of one substance. But already half of you are falling asleep, because that's boring. And every time I said simple Christianity, every, I had to explain it. Because everyone thinks simple means dumb, and blah, blah. So in the end, I'm not calling it that. Instead, our series is called Stay Close. And that comes from James chapter 4, verse 8, which we'll come to in a short while. And in James 4, verse 8, it says, Come close to God, and he will come close to you. So our series is called Come Close to God. And today, we're just going to look at the first eight verses, but I'm watching my watch, and I'm feeling the heat, and if I think it's too hot, I'll stop after the first point. So don't lose heart. If you want me to stop, just fall off your chair like you fainted, and then we'll stop. But here is the point for today, and it's all on your outlines. The point for today is this. Purified faith in God means we get everything we need from God to be wise and stable. That's verse 1 to verse 8. Did you get it? It's all there for you. And so we're going to look at that. Let me give you, because we're starting today, some quick introductory comments on the first verse. Look at what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's a letter. Who's the letter from? It tells you. It says there, James. James was the brother of Jesus. He doesn't even have to say James an apostle because everyone knew who he was. And there have never been 
any grounds to doubt that James is the author of this letter. He's Jesus' brother. Not only that, he died at about AD 62. Herod uh, chopped his head off. And here's the thing. That's amazing. Because that means this letter was written very close to after Jesus died. So you've got an eyewitness, brother of Jesus, writing close after Jesus. Wow. You can trust what it says. But more. Look what he says. A servant of God. That is an Old Testament phrase. It's from the Hebrew. It's like Eved Yahweh. It means a spokesman for God. So James is an authorised spokesman for God. That's who the letter is from. It's from God. But secondly, what authority does it carry? Well, if it's from God, it carries all the authority in the world. What authority does it have? Look closely. James, a servant of God and, literally, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek, which I don't, I don't like doing this, but you could just as easily write this. James, a servant of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you could just as easily say that James is saying that Jesus Christ is God and Lord. And it doesn't matter which way you read it. Because it's astonishing that James, who climbed trees with Jesus and built hardy forts with Jesus, now acknowledges Jesus as Lord. For a Jewish guy to say Jesus is Lord, for a Jewish guy to say my brother is Lord, is amazing. This carries the authority of Jesus Christ himself. We know who it's from. We know the authority. Isn't it amazing? Even though it's 400 degrees Celsius today, in 2022, us modern folk who can operate a mobile phone are studying a letter from some dude in Palestine 2000. It's just extraordinary. That itself speaks for its authority, endearing authority. Who is it to? Look at the last line of first verse. To the 12 tribes in the diaspora, the dispersion. This is another Old Testament phrase. And it means the whole people of God. Whenever you see 12 tribes, it means lock, stock, and barrel. It's for all of God's people. James is writing to all. So, so this morning... You might be tempted to sit here and go, I don't think James is like really relevant to me. No, 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 no. Jesus wants you to know this. This is for you. It's to all God's people. All right, two things this morning, but the one, first one is longer, and I'm seriously thinking about stopping there. In fact, I think I will, unless you all stand up and say encore or something. But uh, just because people listening online, because it's very hot and you can't feel it. Okay, purified faith in God means that we get everything we need from God to be wise and stable. Here's the first point for this morning. Faith in God 
must be purified so that we lack nothing. Faith in God must be purified so that we lack nothing. Look with me at verse 2, uh, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into me. The word means, ooh, where did that come from? It's, it's, got, it's got a note of surprise. Wow, this is out of the blue. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. So it's not just persecution. It's not just cancer. It's not just bankruptcy. It's not, it could be a sore toe. It, of all kinds, various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So look again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials. People, this is astonishing. In fact, this is unique. Does, has anyone studied philosophy here? This is unique. You won't find this anywhere. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. What the? It's unique. So, stoicism is the idea that when you fall into trials, be strong. Stiff upper lip. That's why you grow a moustache. The, you know, the British Empire. Because you keep that lip steady. You know? You brace yourself. But you don't count a joy. You just keep going. But it's not joy. Fatalism. What is fatalism? Fatalism is when... Wait, let's quote uh, the javelin thrower. What's his name? Shakespeare. Fatalism is when you suffer the flings and, sorry, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, it's about, oh, well, look, you know, what can you do? Just go with the flow, dude. You know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade or whatever, you know. Uh, that's fatalism. But it doesn't say count it all joy. Well, what about psychology? There's a great phrase called, uh, a, a theory of thinking called acceptance um, practice or acceptance theory where you learn to look it is what it is it sucks but hey do the best you can with what you can acceptance theory it doesn't say count it all joy what does immature Christianity say immature Christianity says this it's the devil cast out your trials in the name of Jesus you can't have trials. You've got to get rid of them. In the name of Jesus. Chase your trials and they'll go away. Joy is the absence of trials. James says no. Count it all joy when you're in trials. Now listen, James is not a sadomasochist or masosadocist. Or, I always get those confused. He's neither of those things. He's not saying you enjoy your suffering. That's martyrdom. You don't enjoy your suffering. Suffering sucks. It's horrible. We're not Buddhists. 
Suffering is real. Buddhism says suffering is an illusion. Suffering is real. James is not saying enjoy your suffering. It's horrible. But James is saying that joy and suffering are not incompatible. You can have both at the same time. And the question is, how? How? Can I count it all joy when I'm going through sufferings? Two reasons. One in the text, and I'll just give you another one quickly. The reason you can count it all joy when you suffer trials is because trials cannot separate you from what you love the most. And we're back to the central message of James. If your heart is filled with a love for God, then trials don't separate you from what you love and you're okay. The Bible says in Romans 8, I'm persuaded neither death nor life, persecution, famine, nakedness, none of those things can separate us from the love of God. So if my heart is filled with God and love for him, my trials won't kill me because they can't separate me from what I love. But if your heart is ADH, you know what I'm saying, divided, and I love this and I love that, then trials, well, they can really get to you because they might separate you from something you love. You know, you love running and you kick your toe and now you've got a sore toe and now you can't run, so now you're devastated. It's cut you off from your first love, for example. That's one reason, but there's another reason, and it's in the text. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The reason I can enjoy God and rejoice in trials, though I hate trials, is because it purifies my faith. Look at that word there, testing. Did you see that? The testing of your faith. Please don't think that that means lit. When I hear testing, the one thing I remember from school, which was her, 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 no, sorry. The one thing I remember from school was litmus. I don't even know what it means now. But that's not what this means. This is not a test like that. God doesn't look down at you and go, I wonder if she really has faith. Oh, wait. Oh, here's a bucket of suffering. Oh, she turned blue. She's got faith. God's not testing your faith like that. Testing here means purifying. Going through trials to purify. God lets us suffer so that our faith can be purified. And when it's purified, what does it lead to? Look what it says. It produces steadfastness. Mature Christians are steadfast. They're stable. Their faith in God is unshakable. They're strong. When you're a baby, you have faith, but you're unreliable, unsteady. You, you flop and you get tossed to and fro. So when you're a baby Christian, and you believe in Jesus, oh, and then you go to the doctor, and you know what happens. Go for an x-ray, or whatever. 
and then he phones you a day later, and they don't ever phone you, but he phoned me a day later, and he says, like, dude, you need to be here today, two o'clock, you just know. And then you go in, and he says, I've got bad news for you. When that happens to you as a baby Christian, what happens? You start thinking, maybe God isn't good. Maybe I can't trust God. Maybe, and then you start suffering and, and you're really struggling. And then you start thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I did not sign up for this. I didn't think that God would let me be this and And so your faith is easily shaken by suffering. Whereas a mature Christian, steadfast, trials come. It doesn't affect your relationship with God at all because you are now mature and still maturing you know all relationships work like this do you know you start dating a guy right okay so you're dating a guy well let's say you're married and you've been married one year and then suddenly you see him talking to another girl but because the relationship's new you're jealous and you start thinking oh have I made a mistake? Does he like her? Is he going to cheat on me? Is he a player? And I didn't know, you know? Once you've been married for 30 years and there's maturity and you look up and he's talking to another girl, what do you think? You think, oh, poor girl. Yeah? <laughs> or, or you think, oh, he's boring her to death. Don't worry, I'm stuck with him. You know, okay, that's not what I mean. What I mean is... You're not shaken. You know him. You mean 30 years together. He's never cheated on you. He hasn't come close. There's trust. It's the same with God. Mature Christians have steadfast faith in God. How does faith grow? How does faith grow? Unless you go through trials. Come on. How can your faith grow unless you go through trials? So those of you who got your mobile phones, I just remembered, I did put this quote on the passage. But for those of you, just listen. This is John Newton. Listen to what he says. It's so logic. Now, I know the language is old. But listen anyway. John Newton says this. How are you to know experimentally either your own weakness or the power wisdom and grace of God seasonably and sufficiently afforded except by frequent and various trials it's such a clever question what John Newton is saying is experimentally doesn't mean litmus again it, it's old language for by experience like tasting and he's saying, how, how are you ever going to know how weak you are? Do you know, when I become a Christian, and I don't go through trials, God, don't worry, I got this. I'm the best Christian this planet has ever. Then I go through trials, and quickly, I see what a weak Christian I am. Until I drop that hammer on my toe, my speech has been flawless the whole week long. Trials expose my weakness. But John Newton says more than that. It also it shows me the power and wisdom and grace of God seasonably and sufficiently afforded. God gives me grace and power, which he doesn't give me 
when I'm not going through trials. Have you not known? I'm not going to give names, but there are Christians in this church who suffer. And I'm blown away that the same Christians who suffer end up suffering more. And I'm like, really, God? But they will tell you they receive a grace, a strengthening from grace that they wouldn't receive unless they were going through trials. Trials purify faith. Now, you might be sitting there going, so what? You know what? I'd rather be a baby Christian and go surfing and uh, I don't want my faith to be... So what? What's the draw of this? Look at verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Why do I want to be steadfast? Why do I want my faith to grow? Why do I want to mature as a Christian? Grow, I'm, I'm a guy who struggles with growing up, and I'm trying. doesn't sound like fun to me. Why must my faith grow up and mature? Why? And the answer is logic. Now, I want everyone to think. I know it's hot, and we're only going to do this point. You have my word, and then we'll all stop and run and jump in the pool. But listen, why must my faith grow? Everybody watch the logic. Verse five, 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, so that, here's why, you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Here's why. Listen to the logic. Faith is the glue that unites me and God. Faith brings me close to God. And when I get God, I get everything I need. That's the logic. As my faith grows and I stop trusting in all those other little things, and I start trusting in God only, I get everything I need from him. That's the logic. When your faith is steadfast, and you, I'm sorry, but I do use this language with my wife. I try and say, darling, this morning I spend time, sounds terrible, sucking on God. (laughs) It's a terrible phrase. Uh, So I shouldn't have said that publicly. But she knows what I mean. I go and draw on him for strength and comfort and everything that I need. And you won't do that unless your faith grows. Because if it's a baby faith, you've still got ADHD of the heart and you're still trusting in God, but I'm also trusting in my bank account. And I'm also, you haven't got great faith yet. Faith brings you and God closer. Our series is called Stay Close. And when you're close to God, in God, you get everything you need. You are complete, lacking in nothing. What more could you want than God? Everybody, what can this planet give you that God can't give you? And if you say, well, 
you know, this can make me high. God doesn't make me high. Well, I think there's churches that are designed to make you high, but that's another subject. Um, but, well, but if God doesn't give it to you, then it's not good for you, etc. Look at verse 6 again. If anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to everyone without... We'll look at this next week. Let him ask in faith, not doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven, tossed by the wind. If you're not drawing from God, whatever you're drawing from is going to make you feel seasick because it's unreliable. Let me give you a final illustration and maybe a quote and we'll be done. So you know this is going to happen all through summer. All through summer, I'm going to give you sailing illustrations. But don't worry, winter's coming, and then I'll give you different boring illustrations. But sailing. Sometimes I go sailing, and being a responsible person that I am, I'm sailing by myself. I have a long rope out the back of the boat. And what I love to do is I jump off the boat, because I've got an auto home, and then I hold the rope. And it pulls me, even when I'm way, even beyond rotness, I'm way out. But I hang on the rope and I just look down. And if you're lucky, you can even, sometimes, it's happened once, dolphins, and you can watch them. But you wear goggles and you just, even if it's shallow, you can just get pulled over and you watch the reefs. It's, so, it's the lazy man's way of diving, you know. It's so, it's so cool. There you go. Very responsible, you know. If I fell off, well, that's the point. If I fall off, on that yacht is everything I need for life. If I fall off, well, that's tickets for me. Goodbye, yacht, as it sails off into the... And I'm alone with nothing. So I understand why most people don't do that, but I do it anyway. Now, here's the point. Before I jump off, I've got a rope. I know that rope. I know how it's tied. I check it. That rope is so strong. Trust me, it's very strong. Faith is the way you are connected to God who has everything you need. You need to go through trials so the rope, your faith that connects you to God is stable and strong. If it isn't, if that rope is an alloy of love of money, love of girls, love of reputation, love of your... And, and a little bit of love of God, that rope is not pure. And you could be in the sea, and it could snap. And then, verse 6, you'll be like a wave, driven and tossed, and this rhymes, and lost. That's why faith must be purified. That's why Christians must go through trials. That's why Christians rejoice. Even when it hurts, we rejoice. I'm going to close with one last thought, because it's too hot. A little faith will still save you. A little faith will take your soul to heaven. But a lot of faith will bring heaven to your soul. That's not me, that's Spurgeon. And so I'm going to leave you with one last illustration, which I'm almost going to read to you. I want to show you that Christians who go through suffering 
and whose faith is refined and who suck on God and get everything they need from God are happier than immature Christians who don't need God as much. The story comes from John Payton, a book I commend to you. Ask me afterwards. I think it's called King of the Cannibals. I can't remember. It's a book I've read a couple of times. I love it. He goes as a missionary to the Hebrides or the Papua New Guineas or the, I can't remember, Vanuatu, far away, little islands. And this is two, three hundred years ago. He loses his wife. He loses his children. I mean, you can't imagine. You guys think you're hot. Try a Scottish guy in the Papua New Guineas or something. You know, I mean, the guy's dying. It's so hot. Anyway, and there's a fight in the village, and he's been a missionary for years with no success, and he's like, God, you know, really? And blah, blah, blah. Finally, this one tribe decides they're going to kill him and eat him. And they chase him with clubs. I mean, have you been chased with clubs? I've been chased out of clubs, but I've never been chased... Sorry, I say things I shouldn't. But, uh, but that was before I was a Christian. But anyway, um, have you been chased with clubs? And they want to eat you? And so he runs and he climbs into a tree and, there he, and they burn his house, they burn everything. So here is a Scottish dude in 40 degrees Celsius, up in a tree, nothing to show for his work for years. No friends, no mobile phone, you know, dial 111 or whatever. What do you think he's going to do? Here's what he does. It's his own words. What, what does James say? Count it all joys, Mr. Payton. Okay, watch what he says. I climbed into the tree and was left alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it was yesterday. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not begrudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Saviour's spiritual presence. Listen to the sentence. And to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Don't you think he should have said, oh, if I had a cold gold and I was at home on the couch watching telly. Oh, no. When your faith matures, you cling to Jesus and want nothing more than the joy that comes in fellowship with him. Faith in God must be purified so that we lack Nothing. 
and I am not going to do point two because this trial is too heavy to bear. So in that case, I'm going to close in prayer and we will pick up uh, the next few verses next week. Let me close in prayer, but in the meantime, I'm just going to give you a few seconds to gather your thoughts and uh, you are welcome to ask 